Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. At a number of places in Tragic Sense of Life, Miguel de Unamuno is going to discuss the interrelations between two important faculties or sets of faculties of the human being. And we could broadly call these the intellectual or rational and the volitional or, if you like, cognitive that have to do with the theoretical in some respect and the practical, although these do interpenetrate each other quite a lot. Another way of thinking about this is intellect or reason and the faculty of will, although Unamuno will also use the term the heart. And so in philosophy, really since the identification of something like the faculty of will, which, which happens fairly early on, there will be a distinction between, you could say, upper level faculties of intellect or reason, which are held to be distinctive to human beings, and then the will, which is also distinctive to human beings in a certain sense. We'll talk about that in just a moment, but it's also an affect or feeling or desirous faculty, which we share in common with animals. And I'm not going to go into a long discussion of this, but we can say that in ancient Greek, you know, the identification of the thumos by Plato, the identification of the, the proiresis in Aristotle, and then even more so in Epictetus is getting us kind of on the way to something like a full-blown conception of the will in a robust sense. And there are many different conceptions of the will, so we don't have to be necessarily tied down to any of them. But this is the background against which Unamuno is writing. And typically, as I mentioned, there's going to be sort of a prioritization in philosophy of the intellectual or cognitive or rational faculties over the faculty of decision, choice, desire, however we want to frame it. Now, for Unamuno, if we're going to do philosophy well, and he wants us to do that, if we want to grasp this tragic sense of life that he's talking about, we have to philosophize as an entire person. And that means, as he says, that we are going to have the opportunity and also the requirement of reconciling, as he calls them, intellectual necessities with, the, in, with necessities of the heart and the will. And he says as well here that the values that we're discussing are values of the heart and against values of the heart. Reasons do not avail. Reasons are only reasons, right? And he's talking about people who appear to think only with the brain, not with the heart, the lungs, the belly, the life. And so he says that this is going to be something that we need to closely attend to. Philosophy is going to have to be involving both the recognizing and then reconciling intellectual necessities, things that we realize we have to think with those that are imposed on us by our entire affective side. He tells us a little bit later, this is in chapter two, that we philosophize as an entire person. He says, philosophy is a product of the humanity of each philosopher. Each philosopher is a person of flesh and bone who addresses himself or herself to other people of flesh and bone like themselves. So let this person do what they will. They philosophize not with the reason only, but with the will. 
with the feelings, with the flesh, and with the bones, with the whole soul, and the whole body. It is the human being who philosophizes, not just one part of the human being. So Unamuno is actually going against a lot of philosophical tradition, but he's also, in many respects, also echoing a number of different important thinkers throughout philosophical tradition. He identifies some of these who we nowadays call existentialists, but we might also think of others as well. A bit later in chapter six, he will tell us that in the depths of the abyss, and that's what chapter six is actually titled, we find that the heart and the will and reason meet up. And here's how he describes it. In the depths of the abyss, the despair of the heart and of the will and the skepticism of reason meet face to face and embrace like brothers. We shall see it is from this embrace a tragic, that is to say, an intimately loving embrace that the wellspring of life will flow a life serious and terrible. Skepticism, uncertainty, the position to which reason by practicing its analysis upon itself, upon its own validity at last arrives, is the foundation upon which the heart's despair must build up its hope. So we need both faculties. He is not an irrationalist. He's not a person who's saying only go for what the will or the heart tells you. Forget about it, reason. No, let reason do its job. When you do that, reason will, working upon itself, realize its own, not just even limitations, but the holes within it, the gaps, the lacunae, to use a frame of mind that other existentialists have pointed out as well. In the depths of the abyss, these faculties meet up together and realize that they need to embrace. He goes on a little bit further in chapter six to talk about how the will and the intelligence actually need each other in important ways. He tells us the will and intelligence have need of one another and the reverse of that old aphorism, nihil volitum quin pri cognitum, nothing is willed but what is previously known. The reversal of this is not so paradoxical as at first sight it may appear. What would the reversal be? Nihil cognitum quin pri volitum, nothing is known but what is previously willed. Without a desire, as he points out, to see, there is no seeing. You know, this goes back to one place you could look is Thomas Aquinas's discussion of the relation between the will and the intellect in the Summa Theologia, you know, is, which is higher, the will or the intellect. And one argument is that, well, the will directs the rational faculties, not in their actual exercise, but to what their proper objects ought to be. So I think about a problem because I want to think about that problem because I feel it's important and because I choose to focus on that as opposed to the many other things I could be thinking about. So the will plays an important role. Thomas will say, yes, yes, but actually the intellect is above the will. You know, what's going on with Unamuno is they're really on the same level and interfused with each other. There are other thinkers through history, by the way, who have that point of view. So reversing this priority and saying, you know, unless your will is actually directing your intellect towards things, your intellect probably is not going to focus on those as relevant, as important. And a little bit later, he's going to tell us something else very interesting about the will. He tells us that the will and the intelligence seek opposite ends. The will wants to absorb the world into ourselves, appropriate it to ourselves, that's the aim of the will, and that we may be absorbed into the world, that of the intelligence. And then he says, opposite ends? Are they not rather one and the same? And then he says, no, 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 they're not. 
They may look the same, depending on what philosophy you adopt, but they actually know these are very, very different ends. And he says, the intelligence is monist or pantheist, the will monotheist or egoist. The intelligence has no need of anything outside itself to exercise itself upon. It builds its foundations with ideas itself, while the will requires matter. To know something is to make this something that I know myself. To avail myself of it, to dominate it, it has to remain distinct from myself. And so this is a very interesting passage. Is he to be taken here as saying, aha, the will and reason are both equally concealing the nature of things from ourselves or making us do the wrong thing? Well, not exactly. He is saying that that is a tendency that is inherent within the intellect and within the will. But when they're actually working in conjunction with each other, or you might say in productive contradictoriness or conflict or tension, well, then they can restrict each other and then we can have a person, because a person is more than just their intellect and more than just their will, right? There are all these other things. We can have a person who is properly functioning in, in certain ways. So the will and the intellect's ends play a role here in their harmony, integration, or discord, and we might even say failures. Later on in chapter entitled Faith, Hope, and Charity, which you know are the traditional theological virtues where he's, he's reconsidering these within a existentialist framework, he is going to tell us that faith can be understood as an act of the will. Right? He, he also tells us, since a person is a will and will always has reference to the future, the person who believes, believes in what to come, that is in what he hopes for as well. Now, he goes on and he tells us something really important about faith. And this is very important in part because when people hear this word faith, they typically think of sort of blind belief in something. As one person said, faith is when you believe in something you know isn't true. Well, that's not faith from an Unamunian or existentialist perspective. He is with Kierkegaard on this. Faith is a comportment that goes through the entire person. It is not something that you can reduce to merely a substitute for thinking or rationality. People do call that faith. Those people would be wrong, according to Unamuno. So faith can be understood as something that the will itself is deeply involved in. He tells us that faith is not the mere adherence of the intellect to an abstract principle. So merely reciting a creed or something like that, that's not faith yet, right? It's not the recognition of a theoretical truth, a process in which the will merely sets in motion our faculty of comprehension. The relation between will and intellect in faith is not simply that faith says, all right, I want you to believe this, find some reasons for that, or think this out. It's not that faith sort of hands off a baton or throws the football or then the other one brings it home. No. Faith is something where will remains involved, and that's why it's an act. Actually, to call it an act of will is a little bit misleading because we tend to think of acts as something we do once and then it's done. It's a continual acting. It's what we might call a comportment or action, right? So the will is continually engaging itself. He calls faith itself a movement of the soul towards a practical truth, towards a person, towards something that makes us not merely comprehend life, but that makes us live. And then he goes on and says, it makes us live by showing us that life, although it's dependent on reason, 
has its wellspring and source of power elsewhere in something supernatural and miraculous, something that goes beyond reason and the rational faculties, but doesn't simply throw them aside in an irrationalism. Later on, just in that same section, he talks about faith as a creative power in the human being. He says, we have said faith is a thing of the will. It would be better to say it is will itself, the will not to die, or rather that it is some other psychic force distinct from intelligence, will, and feeling. We should thus have feeling, knowing, willing, and believing or creating. Why? Because neither feeling nor intelligence nor will creates. They operate on material already given upon the material given them by faith. Faith is the creative power in humanity. He's using faith here now in a much broader sense, isn't he? Than just simply religious faith, credo, I believe that X, Y, Z. He's talking about it as being part of our existential condition. Everyone has faith in something, whether they acknowledge it as faith or not. So he goes on and he says, since it has a more intimate relation with the will than with any other faculties, we conceive it under the form of volition, right? So that's why we, we think of faith as being an act of will, even though strictly speaking, it's something exceeding the will just as much as it exceeds the intellect. So intellect and volition, two very important faculties or capacities or existential dimensions of the human being, both of which are absolutely needed in order to philosophize, if philosophizing is indeed going to be philosophizing with the whole human person. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.